Today on the Matt Walsh Show, the overeducated, credentialed elite class has made it clear that most of us are not qualified to speak or form our own opinions, and yet somehow we are qualified to pay their student loans. We'll discuss. Also, I had the honor of uh, being a part of a bill signing event in Mississippi banning gender transitions for minors. I'll talk about that. And Lori Lightfoot, the first black gay female mayor of Chicago, is also now the first Chicago mayor in decades to lose re-election. Uh, she lost because she's historically incompetent, but she blames... You'll never guess, racism. And a school shooting survivor competes on American Idol, but Katy Perry uses his trauma as a platform for pushing gun control. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. You worked hard for what you have. Uh, who do you trust to handle any and all of your financial obligations if you can? According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans who think about their own death a lot of the time still don't have a will. That's kind of like being afraid of drowning but refusing to wear a life jacket or learn how to swim. Creating a will is one of the most important things you can do to ensure your belongings and your loved ones are taken care of after you pass away. My partners at Epic Will can help you get set up with a will today, and they can do it for just $119 and in as little as five minutes. Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, even healthcare power of attorney. Go to epicwill.com walsh to get my discount code and save an extra 10% on your complete will package. With Epic Will's easy-to-use template, all you have to do is fill in the blanks. Go to epicwill.com walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com walsh. Well, it won't be easy to pick just one inscription to put on the tombstone of modern culture. But if we have only one that we can pick, then uh, I think we might consider the phrase, trust the experts. Or perhaps because it's on our tombstone, we should phrase it, in the past tense, you know, like, here lies 21st century America, they trusted the experts. Now, these days, of course, we all carry around in our pockets more information than we could hope to consume in a billion lifetimes. And with all this information comes countless informers, billions of people all talking to each other, passing information along back and forth. Now, every techno technological advancement has its downsides, of course, and there's, there's no question that the internet has plenty of those. We talk about them all the time. But for the elites and for the institutions they run, the downside is that all of this informational accessibility, all of this communicating that normal people are able to do with each other, marginalizes them, the elites. They feel themselves getting cut out of the picture. They believe that uh, they should be in charge of what people are told and not told, of what information is shared and not shared, of what ideas are spread and not spread. Ultimately, they wish to be in charge of what people know or think they know and therefore what they believe about the world and about themselves. And that's why they've redoubled their efforts in recent years to combat what they call misinformation, which is their euphemism for any information that they, for whatever reason, don't want people exposed to. Trust the experts, they declare, which is another way of saying don't trust your own intuition, your own common sense, or your own two eyes, your own brain, your own ability to read information and process it. Trust us instead. These uh, self-described experts have then used their self-appointed expert status to lead us into one calamity after another. The experts told us to lock ourselves in our homes during COVID, to wear masks, to take the vaccine. The experts tell us to stop having children, to start eating bugs, to stop driving cars, to stop enjoying the same modern technology that they continue to enjoy because it's uh, destroying the planet when we do it, but not when they do it. The experts tell us to put our kids on chemical castration drugs. The experts tell us that uh, men can give birth to babies, that there are 900 genders. The experts tell us that 
every facet of the human condition is actually a mental illness. The expert tells, tells us that the nuclear family is an outmoded institution. The experts tell us that we have no souls, that there is no God, that there is no underlying purpose or, or you know, meaning to existence. The experts wave their resumes around, flash their degrees, affix letters to the beginnings and ends of their names, and demand that we um, show unthinking deference to those credentials. When we ask why we should, they simply point back to the credential as if the credential, uh, as if the credibility conferred by the credential is self-evident, but it isn't. Now, never mind that the credentialed class has been wrong about basically everything for years now. And not merely wrong. I mean, they're pushing the most wrong, most baseless, most destructive and outright insane ideas that the human mind has ever conceived of. They profess a vision of the world that is entirely divorced from reality. And the farther their vision drifts from reality, the more aggressive they must be in their efforts to discredit and shout down and censor and silence information that contradicts that vision. The experts are very often wrong, and their wrongness has made them vulnerable, and their vulnerability has made them afraid, and their fear has made them tyrannical. Now, of course, I happen to be a target, personally, of this credential elitism very often because I have a large platform. I take positions that contradict the elite's preferred narrative, and I do all this without even having so much as a college degree to my name. I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. I went to community college for like a semester and then dropped out. And that's the extent of my academic resume. This infuriates them. I mean, and anyone, anyone in this category, you don't have any, you didn't even go to college and you would dare to have opinions and ideas and to say them out loud. It infuriates them. Which is why their primary response to me and so many others, their first and usually only rebuttal is to point out that I have no degrees or certificates framed and hanging on the walls in my office while they have many. The only framed certificate that I have in my office at, the, at Daily Wire headquarters is a printout of the top LGBT books on Amazon when Johnny the Walrus was number one in that category. That is the only credential that I ever boast about and the only one I have or need. Well, there was a fresh round of these sorts of attacks after uh, my testimony at a Tennessee House hearing a few weeks ago where, uh, as we saw, a Democrat lawmaker made sure to point to my lack of academic credentials as evidence that I'm not qualified to make provocative statements like women don't have penises and you shouldn't castrate a child. Uh, ever since that moment, many on the left have been jumping yet again on this bandwagon, taking turns lobbing pot shots at the high school graduate who dared to form an opinion that they did not sanction ahead of time. This led to a, what is now a viral tweet from um, someone who goes by Dr. Ian Copeland, PhD, which is how he refers to himself in his Twitter handle. Well, actually, it was he took the doctor off because he was getting bullied. Everyone was making fun of him for it. And so he took that off, but he still has Ian Copeland, PhD. Um, he took a screenshot of this exchange at the hearing. Not, not Didn't post the video, just a screenshot of the video because I don't want people to see the video. Screenshot and posted this caption alongside it. Side note, why do people listen to Matt Walsh about, well, anything? He's a high school graduate talking about biology, sex, policy, and vaccines. He literally yields no value on any of these topics. I would like to respond to that, but then again, I may not be academically qualified enough to answer direct attacks made against me. I would need to spend three years at an Ivy League graduate school studying uh, the, science, the science of rebuttals first. I would need to take a class with a name like... Um, 
The Art of the Clapback, Race and Gender in the Age of the Twitter Feud, or whatever. But even without this kind of accreditation, I, I still feel the need to make a few points to these over-credentialed snobs. First, if you want to run with the idea that high school graduates should not be taken seriously when they express their views on any topic, that we aren't even qualified to make statements about basic biological realities, then you're free to do so. You can say that, but please don't insult our intelligence, however limited you might think it is, by turning around in the next breath and pretending to be a champion of the poor and the working class. I mean, these are the people who fix our cars and our plumbing and maintain all the buildings and the bridges, provide you with all the food you eat. They run and staff every store you shop in. You'd be utterly helpless without them, and yet to you, they shouldn't be taken seriously. Like they can do all these things for you, but, they, but anything they say should not be taken seriously. Their, their view of the world is less than worthless. You've waved your magic wand and discredited all of them at once, which of course is the whole point. You want the masses to come crawling to you on hands and knees, heads bowed in submission, asking for your blessing before they formulate any thoughts of their own. Again, you're free to hold this perspective, but please don't pretend to be anything but a snide elitist prick peering down on the common man with contempt because that's what you are. Of course, you know, not everyone who has no college degree is poor or blue collar, nor do we all know how to fix your cars or your plumbing. I certainly don't. And in my case, I used to be poor. I'm not anymore. These days, I earn a better living than lots of the people who have all those fancy letters next to their names. And that really, really makes them angry because they followed the system. I went around it and ended up ahead of them. And that infuriates them. And I'm glad it does. But most of their anger is a defense mechanism. They hide behind their credentials because they know that their ideas cannot stand on their own. They have to prop them up with the pieces of paper that they plunge themselves into six-figure debt to obtain. Now, I've already asked this question to uh, Dr. PhD Ian, and now I'll ask it again to the entire credentialed class. I mean, I've been asking it. Can't get an answer. Taking that hearing, for example, I was at that hearing to testify against the mutilation and castration of children. Can you explain why I'm wrong in my views on that subject? If I'm nothing but a drooling, low-IQ dunce walking around and like, grass-stained overalls with no shoes and five missing teeth, you know, like we high school graduates always do, that it should be very easy to defeat whatever arguments we say. In fact, you shouldn't need to point out the lack of schooling. You should be able to demonstrate my deficiencies by masterfully debunking me point by point. You should be able to use your years of academic training to explain and defend your point of view and provide persuasive evidence that yours is right and mine is wrong. But you don't do that. You don't even try you shrink away from any opportunity to actually demonstrate why your ideas are correct because you can't demonstrate it and you know you can't. Your degrees are supposed to act as a ring of protection, a force field around your ideas, exempting them from scrutiny. But many of us have noticed that the force field is imaginary. And so we're walking right through it and right up to you and demanding that you justify your unearned sense of importance. We're just not respecting the academic hierarchy because it's done everything in its power to lose our respect. So now we're flipping it on its head and we're tossing it aside. And that scares the credentialed people, and it should. Now, one final point. There, there have been protests in D.C. this week as the Supreme Court considers whether to strike down Biden's unconstitutional, quote-unquote, student loan forgiveness plan. Um, the protesters insist that uh, not only should the plan be kept in place, 
but that it should go further than it already does. they, They want all student debt to be erased. And half of that debt, we should remember, is held by people with graduate degrees. So these are, you know, what you've got is, uh, in large part, people with graduate degrees and all those fancy letters that are demanding that working class people pay their debts for them. One of those protesters was a, was a teachers union president, Randy Weingarten, who uh, was there and, uh, and she spoke. And, and we can add public speaking to the list of skills that this person doesn't have. Listen. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting and we helped them and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting and we helped them and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair. And that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. I mean, it, it's an interesting strategy because you hear that, you listen to this person speak, and you're tempted to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Just stop talking, please, God. Of course, Weingarten is a, a ranking member of the system that created the student debt crisis in the first place. And now... She wants a bailout precisely so that they can continue continue doing everything they did to cause the problem. But I also can't help but notice, staying on the topic here, the connection between the trust the experts credentialism and the push for student loan forgiveness. Because the very people who wave their degrees around as evidence of their superiority now want us to pay for those degrees. Okay, they tell us that we are not qualified to speak, to form opinions, to debate or discuss, and yet we are qualified apparently to carry the financial burden of their own life choices? We're qualified for that? They talk down to us, and they have the gumption, the gall to do it with their hands in our pockets. Now, this is far from the only reason to say no to this kind of upper-class welfare scheme, which is what, quote-unquote, student loan forgiveness is. And that really is all the reason you need to say no to it. It is upper-class welfare. But this is, is, if it's not not the only reason, it's, it's one of them. You cannot treat us like children and expect us to be your sugar daddy at the same time. If anything, it should go the other way. If you want your loan forgiven... If you want to, and you're saying that we should be the ones to forgive it, we're the ones paying for it. Well, you should have to give up, first of all, all of your precious titles and degrees. That's what happens if you don't pay for your car, or your house, you lose it. To begin with, there should be a, a repossession. You should have to forfeit those letters next to your name. In fact, you should have to give your titles to us, the people paying the bill. Then at least it'd be a swap instead of a straightforward theft. If I'm paying for your PhD, I should get it. It belongs to me. I bought it, not you. Look at me. I'm the PhD now. That's what it should be. That's a satisfying thought in some ways. But uh, ultimately, uh, I don't think I would accept that deal. That's a better deal than, than anything they've proposed. Because I don't want anyone's useless credential. That's their humiliation to bear. And the debt that came with it is their problem to solve. 
I mean, you guys are so much smarter than us, right? Well, then, then figure it out, geniuses. The fact is that your degrees do not confer the kind of qualifications that you imagine, but they do at least qualify you to pay for them, okay? That's one qualification that you do have. And that is one credential, the credential of debt holder, DH, put those letters next to your name, that I absolutely will respect. Now let's get to our five headlines. Given the dreary economic forecasts that lie ahead, you might be looking for ways to cut back on spending. I know uh, most of us are. Well, Pure Talk saves the average family over $900 a year when they switch from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Get unlimited talk, text, and plenty of data for just $30 a month. Pure Talk is so sure that you're going to love their service. They're backing it up with a 100% money-back guarantee. Stop paying a fortune to Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Cut your bill in half with Pure Talk. Their U.S.-based customer service team makes the switch really easy. Switch over to Pure Talk in as little as 10 minutes while keeping your phone and your phone number. Uh, your first month is guaranteed, risk-free, but you got to go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Walsh to save 50% off on your first month. I know I use Pure Talk. You should use it too. That's puretalk.com, promo code Walsh. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yesterday, uh, I was honored to attend the bill signing in Mississippi of a law banning the medical transition of children uh, in that state. It's a nationwide movement. As I've been saying, this is not just in Tennessee. It's not just in one state. It's one state after another. And the governor of Mississippi, Governor Reeves, was uh, nice enough to invite me to be a part of the event. And uh, it was great. I said a few words at the signing and then uh, hung around for the press conference where, um, where I fielded some of the questions. Now, I will admit, I will admit, uh, just to be entirely transparent, that I was a little bit disappointed that the leftist journalists in the room completely folded, just folded like a like a you know like a lawn furniture and didn't try to challenge me at all. I mean, even given the opportunity with me standing right there and the cameras rolling, didn't try to challenge. Now, that of course, wasn't the point of the event. The point is that this very important bill was signed, and now children are protected in uh, in Mississippi. But kind of hoping for the cherry on top where the media would try to come after me, and they, and they didn't. Um, although it's been funny after the fact to see how these people processed this and the fact that I was there. For example, here's a guy named uh, Kobe Vance, they, them, trans flag and bio, uh, journalist for Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And he was there, and he did ask a question. Before we get to that, let's, let's, here, he kept a running thread of everything that was going on, and this is what he said. Uh, he starts with, I'm in the governor's office today at Tate Reeves prepares to, as Tate Reeves prepares to sign HB 1125 into law. It will ban gender-affirming health care for trans youth. Reeves is going on about side effects of gender transition drugs, which are well-documented and known about in the trans community. He says conservatives are under attack from the left for trying to question trans rights by being called transphobic. I believe transphobic public figure Matt Walsh is here in the room, although this is just a guess. They look very similar and have otherwise never seen them in person. Then he says, confirmed it is Walsh. Governor Reeves introduced him during the press conference to speak. I asked a very specific question about how the state will respond to a rise in suicide for trans youth. Reeves did answer my question, pointing back to his policy on life. He says part of the answer should be mental health services. Walsh deflected the question. Walsh points to a lack of scientific data on trans youth and that hormone therapy can't improve mental health. But that wasn't my question. I asked how losing their body positivity could increase suicide rates. 
Uh, Reeves says that he personally opposes the idea of adults transitioning their gender, but does not want to infringe on adults' rights to make the medical decisions. Says he draws the line at youth. For most of the questions about HB 1125, Reeves has deferred to Walsh, that's not true, to expound on whatever answer he gives. Walsh has extensive experience debating trans issues on his show. So I just thought this was interesting because he did, I remember this, this guy uh, asking this question about suicide, and I answered it. He says, I deflected. Of course, he's lying about that. I answered the question about suicide extensively and from several different angles. Uh, in fact, we have a, here's just part of my answer to that question. This is the last minute or so of the answer that I provided. Um, but enough to see that there's nothing like a deflection going on here. Here it is. Not only does it defy common sense, but I find it, I find it frankly grotesque that the way to, to stop a child from tragically hurting themselves is to affirm their belief that there's something wrong with their body, that they were born in the wrong body, that they're the wrong person. No, I, the way to help anyone who's in despair in that way, especially a child, is to, is to help them towards actual self-acceptance, who you really are. So if you're a biological male and you're a boy and you're 15 years old and you feel like you're a girl, the message should be, uh, no, you're a boy and that's a wonderful thing to be who you are. And, and we will help you to accept that because it's wonderful to be who you are. This is who you are. That should be our message. Instead, the message they get from the medical community is, well, oh, okay, if you, if you feel like you were born in the wrong body, then you were, and we'll start chopping pieces of you off until the bad thoughts go away. And I just find that to be utterly horrific and, uh, and insane on its face. Now, I also pointed out that before that, that statistically suicidality is the highest after transition. I pointed out that uh, the claims that transition decreases suicide are baseless and must be baseless because there couldn't possibly be enough data to support it, given that these are experimental treatments that we just recently started giving to kids at a large scale. So pointed out to all, pointed to all that, and um, along with what you just heard there, that counts as a deflection of the question somehow. But Kobe, this journalist, he didn't challenge me at all. In fact, I gave this answer. And he kind of bowed his head submissively, and, and, then, he, it, but, and then he proceeded to, to tweet about it instead. Not a big surprise. Um, in fact, this is what I've, of course, totally come to expect. Uh, but, it, but every time it happens that I'm in the room with these people, Claim that I'm a unqualified bigot and have, have nothing of value to say, and everything that I'm saying is wrong. Okay, you got a chance to prove it. You know, now, now is the time. And they they never do. They rarely even try. And every time that happens, every time that happens, and they dodge like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a little annoying because I'm deprived of the fun moment to you know argue with them. But more importantly. It's actually, it's actually infuriating because it yet again proves that these people know at some level that what they're claiming isn't true and doesn't stand up to scrutiny. They know that. They, they know they can't defend it. They know that they're, they, are, they have staked out a position that they can't actually defend, which is why they will decline almost every opportunity to defend it. Because they can't. And that's what makes it infuriating, is uh, when you realize that 
all these things that are happening, this madness that's being pushed on society, it's not even being pushed by people who are confused or deluded or who uh, have the best intentions. This is not a road to hell is paved with good intentions sort of situation. I mean, the road to hell is also paved with bad intentions. And these people have bad intentions. It's not, it's not that they are wrong, it's that they're evil. I guess is the way to put it. All right. Daily Wire has a support. Chicago Democrat Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her re-election race Tuesday after her first term was plagued by crime, the inability to recover from the pandemic, and petty fighting with officials. Homicide rates under Lightfoot's tenure have skyrocketed to generational highs, while robberies, muggings, carjackings, other property crimes have all seen a significant increase. The two candidates that advanced the runoff race are former school uh, school CEO Paul Vallis, who received the most votes at 35%, with nearly 90% of the votes in. The other candidates, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who garnered 20% of the vote. Lightfoot only earned 16% of the vote. The Associated Press called the race for Vallis and Johnson. Vallis has tried to portray himself as tougher on crime and, uh, and uh, more moderate than Lightfoot, while Johnson is unabashedly far left. So it goes to a runoff, but Lori Lightfoot is not going to be the mayor, so she's lost, which is great news. Great news in a lot of ways. Lori Lightfoot is, is making history yet again. She was the first black gay female mayor of Chicago and also the first mayor in Chicago in decades to lose re-election. So she is breaking glass ceilings everywhere she goes. She also has been easily among the worst mayors of, of a major American city ever. I mean, ever to be elected. And that is, uh, that's not hyperbole. When you look at the 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 disaster that she has left in her wake, it is, it is almost unrivaled by any other mayor in American history of a, of a major American city. So she's proven that a gay black female mayor can truly achieve things that nobody else could possibly achieve, like a 100% increase in violent crime in a couple of years. I, that is, uh, it would be very difficult to achieve that even if you were trying to, and she was able to do that. Of course, Lightfoot saw the, the writing on the wall, and, and she knew that she was about to lose this race in humiliating fashion. So she set up her excuse ahead of time. And you'll never guess what the excuse is. Okay, actually, you will guess because she blames sexism and racism. Obviously, what else is she going to do? This was the Daily Wire report from earlier in the day yesterday before the election results came in. But Lori Lightfoot was, was, was setting the stage. Chicago uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is, is facing an uphill battle in her bid for re-election, and while she primarily blames racism for her plight, she also blames Time Magazine for failing to elevate her the way they did her predecessor. While Lightfoot conceded to Politico's Jonathan Martin that uh, she had certainly made some mistakes during her time as mayor, she claimed that the real issue was the fact that people were quicker to pass judgment on a black woman. Quote, of course you can't have lived through what we lived through and say I did everything perfect. We made mistakes. She said, pivoting to bring former Mayor Rahm Emanuel's Time Magazine spread into the conversation. I remember Rahm Emanuel appearing on the cover of Time Magazine. The headline was basically like, tough guy for Chicago. No woman or woman of color is ever going to get that headline. Lightfoot, the city's first black female lesbian mayor, made a similar complaint during another interview with The New Yorker. Uh, She said, I'm a black woman, and let's not forget, some folks, frankly, don't support us in leadership roles. Then at an interview last year, she was uh, singing a similar tune. She was asked this question. This was the question. In recent months, there have been questions raised about your temperament and your reaction to criticism. A Chicago Tribune editorial used the term irascible. How much of this do you think has to do with the fact that you're a woman and specifically a black woman? Her response, 
99% of it. Look at my predecessors. Did people say that, that uh, Rich Daly held tea sessions with people that he didn't disagree on? Rahm Emanuel was, was a, a polite guy who was on a uniter. No, Woman and pe- women and people of color are always held to a different standard. I understand that. I've known that my whole life. And she's right, obviously. I mean, she is right. Um, if you are, uh, in particular, a, a leftist, and then you belong to one of these preferred identity groups, absolutely you're held to a different standard. A lower one. I mean, a much lower standard. That's what makes these claims so ridiculous. Because they, they are, as always, the opposite of what's actually true. Lightfoot says, oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine a magazine cover celebrating a black woman? Uh, yes. Because that's like every magazine cover. Oh, do you mean every magazine cover for the past 10 years? Just about? I mean, a magazine cover celebrating a white man. That's what's rare. These days. I'm actually, I'm surprised that Time Magazine did that for Ronald Emanuel. He's a Democrat, so you know, he, he, he makes it through based on that. But the rare thing is to see a white male being celebrated by the media at all. Um, to see a black woman or someone who belongs to one of these groups being celebrated, that's, that's, that's every day? I mean, that is literally every day? That's, that, that is, talk about 99%. That's 99% of what the media in Hollywood churns out. But also note this. And this goes, this goes to a point that I made at the end of the show yesterday. Um, one of the guys who beat her, Brandon Johnson, is black. Okay? He's a black guy. And not only that, but she, he, she was, she was uh, defeated by a black man at the hands of voters who were also uh, a, a large percentage of them black. This is Chicago we're talking about. So a lot of black voters voted for a black person instead of Lori Lightfoot, and she blames racism. Well, remember what I said yesterday. Personal complaints are disguised as group complaints. That's the game here. Okay, like Every time you hear a leftist who belongs to one of these supposedly marginalized groups complaining about, um, about the, the, the treatment of the group, in almost every case... This person is really complaining about how they personally are being treated or how they perceive their own treatment. That's what's actually happening. So when you hear, how could you do this to us? What it really means every time is, how could you do this to me? Which is why Lori Lightfoot is not going to take any solace in the fact you know, that, uh, that, she was, she, that another quote-unquote person of color defeated her. And if that person is elected, that's not going to stop her from claiming discrimination. Because she doesn't care whether black people or a black person becomes mayor. She doesn't care about that. She wants herself to be mayor. There is one specific black individual that Lori Lightfoot is concerned about, and it's her. It's not anyone else. Next, we had Biden uh, gave a speech yesterday. It gave rise to another clip of Biden mumbling incoherently. Um, At least that's what people are saying on social media. This clip's being passed around as another Biden word salad. Uh, Let's listen to it. By the way, you docs are good, but there's any angels in heaven, they're all nurses, male and female. You know why? You guys let us, you guys make us 
allow us to live. Nurses make you want to live. You know, I don't do this often. I got to defend Biden on this one. I, it did take, I had to listen to it three or four times, but but once you get, it's like an optical illusion type of thing. And once you, you don't see it at first, at first glance, but once you see it, it becomes obvious. And so what he, he said is, you docs are good, but if there's any angels in heaven, they're all nurses, male and female. You know why? You guys allow us to live. The nurses make us want to live. Now say what you want about that sentiment. The sentiment itself doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that is, that's what he said. So it, it, you know, it's, it is, to say that that was indecipherable word salad is not fair. It was decipherable word salad. It can be deciphered. It takes a little bit of time, but you can decipher it. I thought that this clip from the same speech, um, I thought that this clip was more, much more disturbing, even though you can understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. Um, you kind of wish that you hadn't based on what he says. Listen. And I had a nurse named Pearl Nelson, military. She'd come in and do things that I don't think you learn in medical school, nursing school. She'd whisper in my ear. I didn't, couldn't understand it, but she'd whisper and she'd lean down. She'd actually breathe on me to make sure that I was a, there was a connection, a human connection. She even went home and brought back her pillow from her own bed because she didn't knew the one I had the one comfortable. But I'm not joking. I was like, what? I, got, I could understand. I could basically understand the story that he was telling, but the question is uh, why he was telling that. And then there, it raises a whole bunch of other questions that we don't even want to think about. So that's that, that, when it comes to Joe Biden, that pretty much encompasses everything that he says. It's either you can't understand it at all, or you can, but you wish you couldn't. That's always what it comes down to. This is, uh, yeah, I want to read this story to you from Fox News. I want you to listen to the story and also the words that are being used to report the story by Fox News. Hannah Tubbs, formerly known as James Tubbs, discussed a shift in gender identity as part of a jailhouse phone call regarding the defense lawyer's strategy on how the convicted child molester was being housed prior to a guilty plea in Los Angeles, according to law enforcement sources with knowledge of the call. Tubbs is also, uh, speaking of indecipherable, that that's you know, a, a heck of a run-on sentence to start with. But anyway, Tubbs is also an accused murderer who allegedly began identifying as female only after being arrested in a cold case child sex assault investigation in order to get placed with juvenile girls while awaiting trial. Tubbs, 17 at the time of the attack, has criminal records in California, Idaho, and Washington and pleaded guilty in the case last year and involved an assault on a 10-year-old girl in a Denny's bathroom on New Year's Day in 2014. So, um... So you've, you've probably heard of this, this case, this Hannah, quote unquote, Hannah Tubbs. What's his real name again? James Tubbs. So James Tubbs, child molester, um, convicted criminal, gets arrested and then discovers his uh, true female identity. And this is all a scheme to get housed with, uh, with not just women, but underage girls. Going back to the Fox report. But now Shea Asana, the Los Angeles prosecutor who led the uh, Denny's attack case, has been suspended for five days without pay for allegedly misgendering and deadnaming Tubbs by raising concerns that the repeat offender may have just been pretending to identify as female to have an easier situation in lockup. As Fox News Digital reported Friday, Asana has argued in the past that jailhouse phone calls show that Tubbs, now 27, 
was attempting to use gender identity to game the justice system, an argument that sources say made others in Gascon's, uh, DA Gascon's office uncomfortable and led to the suspension. However, a previously undisclosed January 5th, 2021 jailhouse phone call recording, uh, record, phone call recording captured the first conversation between the newly minted Hannah Tubbs and her father, according to law enforcement sources. Hey, uh, Hannah, the father says at the start of the call, according to the sources, huh? Tubbs replies, Hannah, the father repeats. Tubbs replies with a confused yes, according to the sources, and the father explains he had spoken to the defense attorney who called him and said she represents Hannah. I was like, who? He replies again with a laugh. Okay, so there's a jailhouse phone call where you could you could tell first of all that this was uh, that based on the conversation between the father and uh, James Tubb, Tubbs that this was a that this was an identity that was just invented. Now the father's playing along with it um, in a in a scheme to get this child molester housed with with uh, with girls. But here's the point: um, Fox News article refers to Hannah Tubbs as a her. That's what the article does on Fox News. Now, there have actually been a lot of, there's been, Fox has been on top of this case and has been reporting it quite a bit. In fact, most of what I've heard about this Hannah Tubbs, James Tubbs case has been from Fox News. Fox News. Um, and there are many other examples of this that I could read, but I won't bother. Every single article, it's the same deal. They use the her and the she in the article. Now, obviously, it's insane and evil that this scumbag predator pedophile is able to have his supposed gender identity respected by the court system, um, and that people are getting suspended for correctly gendering, not misgendering, correctly gendering this child-molesting piece of filth. But also, the fact that Fox News, an alleged conservative outlet, while while reporting on the fact that the guy is gaming the system by identifying as trans... They're the ones telling us this, and yet they still respect the female pronouns. What they're saying is, none of this is real. He's pretending. Or no, none of this is real. She is pretending. Well, then why are you using the she? Now, I have an issue in the first place with drawing this distinction between men who are just pretending to identify as women and men who actually identify as women. That's a distinction without a difference. Because in both cases, they're not actually women. So really, the only, the only question is, are they consciously lying? Or are they um, deeply, deeply confused about their own identity? In, in either case, it doesn't change the reality of the situation. So drawing this distinction between, well, that's a pretend trans person and an actual trans person. There is no such thing as an actual trans person, as in a person who actually transcends the the, the gender binary, or a person who actually, you know, uh, belongs to one biological category, but somehow is in this other biological category. That doesn't exist. There's no actual there. So I don't agree with the distinction, but it's just very interesting to me that Fox News they make this distinction, and, and even then, they still respect the pronouns. And you find this with uh, quite a lot of so-called, con- what, what, call it, what qualifies apparently as conservative or right-wing media, even reporting a case like this. Um, 
New York Post is another example. Like it says a reputation of being right wing or conservative, which it really isn't. But they report on cases like this all the time about men who are being housed with women in uh, women's prisons and all the rest of it. Still respect the pronouns. You, you are participating in the lie. And as, as long, if you're going to continue doing that, then the reporting is, is worthless. Okay, you're exposing the lie, but you're participating in it and, uh, and affirming it at the exact same time. Which is it? Are you going to be honest in your reporting or not? That's what you have to decide. Let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Rachel says, my son just got home from his day at our local college. The first thing he said was, I need to turn on Matt Walsh to calm down. The wokeness of his professor was driving him crazy. Well, your son has a good head on his shoulders, so I think he'll do okay. Uh, That's a very, I'm biased, but I would say that's a very encouraging sign. Uh, Jack says, my wife and I moved about 750 miles last year, and we were going to bring our cats and our baby in a plane to make the move quicker and easier on us, but I came to the same conclusion as Matt. Planes are for people, so I found a way to load the cats up in the back of my car, and I endured the torment of listening to them howl for 13 hours rather than making 100 strangers listen to them for two hours. You, this, this is exactly, I want to give you credit for the sacrifice that you made, but I'm sure you understand, Jack, that I, I can't do that because you, sim- you this is you 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 did the right thing. This was your obligation, and I wish that more people would be willing to do that. And if you're not, if you say, well, it's not worth it to drive 13 hours for my pets, well, then maybe you shouldn't have pets. Okay, if you're going to put, if if your convenience is so important, I'm not saying this to you because you understand this, but to everyone else, if your convenience is so important. That, um, you, you know, for the sake of your convenience, you're going to have to you're expose everyone else to your pet, your animal, and make them listen to the sounds and, of your animal and smell your pet on a plane because your convenience is that important. It's more important than your pet, then maybe you shouldn't be a pet owner. Uh, Nick says, I walked into Lowe's Home Improvement the other day, and a couple had two large dogs with them. They weren't seeing eye dogs, and it was really annoying. I actually had to go out of my way down an aisle to avoid tripping over the dog leashes. The owners showed no mind. Disrespect is what it is. Yeah, it's also, I've noticed this too. It's like the dogs, we, we already know that they're brought on planes all the time. But now more and more, uh, you know, the, the, these stores, big box stores are allowing you to bring your pet in. That's one thing if we're talking about Petco or something, then it makes sense. But a hardware store, why do you got to bring your pet in? And if it's an actual, now there are people who have actual disabilities. And so they have service animals. And that's a, that's a real thing. And I respect that. But I would be even more annoyed. If I was someone who had a disability where I actually needed a service animal, a dog, it's like the only legitimate service animal. Um, I'd be even more annoyed by this because now I'm getting lumped in. I get all these people abusing the system. And so I'm getting lumped in with them when I have a legitimate reason to have the service animal. Uh, Gage says, I agree with Matt about the babies crying, except for one public place. And that's the movie theaters. Uh, please do not bring babies to the movies. Yeah. Well, the movies, there, there are a number of places where people should not have to hear your, your baby cry at all. Now, as I said yesterday, I'm much more, um, 
tolerant of listening to babies cry because that is the price of living in a human society. People have children, families exist. This is all a very good thing. It's all very good. And so part of that is you're going to hear the noises of babies and children. And, and uh, if, you, if you have no tolerance for that whatsoever, then that's something wrong. There's something wrong with you and your own soul that you can't even tolerate being around uh, children at all. But that is very much your own problem. We need babies and children to keep society going, and we can't expect them to be like totally segregated from polite society until they're old enough where they're not being annoying anymore, especially because plenty of adults are much more annoying than any child. So that's how I feel. But, that, but there are certainly places where, right, you shouldn't bring a baby. And bringing a baby into a movie theater, no. Uh, I would also say bringing a baby into a nice restaurant. And by nice restaurant, I would kind of, I think the cutoff is if it's the kind of restaurant that doesn't have a kid's menu, it's the kind of restaurant where they're not going to give you a kid's menu and a little coloring pad with crayons. If it's, if it's that kind of restaurant, then yeah, bring the kids, bring all the kids. It's, it's, it's designed for families and it's designed to be kind of loud and all that. The kind of restaurant where they would look at you, they would look at you like you're crazy if you asked for some crayons. That kind of restaurant, probably shouldn't bring babies. Finally, Charlie says, the cuckoo bleep was hilarious. I vote for it staying. A good laugh is welcome when talking about so many depressing things. I agree. I went back and listened to it, and uh, it's incredibly stupid. But that's, but, but I like it. I mean, that is hilarious. And gives me more reasons to cuss on the podcast. To cuss like a damned... It was almost a whole year ago that we released uh, my documentary, What is a Woman? And it's a, a, a film that we, when we were making it, we, we knew that it would have an impact. But I have to say that the impact has far exceeded my own expectations, especially now with um, states all across the country uh, passing laws uh, to protect children from gender ideology. And all this has happened um, you know, in, in a very short amount of time. So if you have not seen this film yet, you got to head to dailywire.com slash subscribe to become a member and watch What is a Woman Today. That's dailywire.com slash subscribe today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. For our daily cancellation, we turn to American Idol. The most interesting thing about this show is that it is apparently still on the air. Um, I don't know if it's, indica- it's, if it's an indication that I'm out of touch or that American Idol is irrelevant. But until this moment, I thought American Idol was canceled years ago. I suppose that's a false choice, however. I mean, the answer could be and probably is both. I'm out of touch and the show is irrelevant. Be that as it may, um, it was back in the cultural conversation ever so briefly this week, but not for anything related to music or singing. Instead, it was the story of one contestant, and more specifically, a judge's reaction to that story that had people talking. Watch. In May 2018... Um, a gunman walked into my school. Uh, I was in art room one. He shot up art room two before he made his way to art room one. Uh, Lost a lot of friends. Uh, Eight eight students were killed. Uh, Two teachers were killed. And uh, it's just really been negative, man. Santa Fe's had a bad rap here since 2018. What you doing, Katie? Our country has failed us. Facts. This is not okay. You should be singing here because you love music. It's true. Not because you have to go through that 
I agree. You didn't have to lose eight friends. I hope that you remind people that we have to change. Because you know what? I'm scared too. It's terrible, Katie. It's horrible. Now, before we deal with the substance of Katy Perry's response to the extent that it had any substance, we cannot ignore the incredible narcissism on display here by her. Perry has apparently attended the, uh, you know, the same tra- training seminars alongside Giselle Fetterman to learn how to make other people's traumas about yourself. He is calmly recounting his own horrific experience, and Perry uses it as a platform to put, this, uh, put on this over-the-top emotional performance She even relates it back to herself somehow. I'm scared too, she says. As her fellow judges comfort her, they start patting her on the back and comforting her while the kid who was actually in the shooting stands there and watches. Here's a hint. If someone is telling you about something awful that happened to them, your response should not contain the words I or me unless you're saying something like I'm so sorry or I'm here for you. But if you're attempting to put yourself at the center of this person's suffering or deflect from it so that the focus is on you and your own emotions, then you are a classic narcissist. And maybe worst of all, you're creating an incredibly awkward situation for everyone else who has to be in the room with your lack of self-awareness. I can only imagine how uncomfortable it must have been for that young man to be standing there, not sure what to say or how to respond as Katy Perry launches into her camera-ready monologue like she's auditioning for a soap opera. A monologue that was planned, by the way, considering that the judges would have known ahead of time that a contestant was coming up who'd been in a mass shooting. That fact was certainly conveyed to Katy Perry and her cohorts by the producers before the kid got up on the stage. She didn't, she didn't you know, burst into tears spontaneously. She had all this planned in her head ahead of time. And I, I understand that this is a very cynical interpretation of events, but I've been around long enough and I've been in media long enough and I've met enough of these sorts of people to justify my cynicism. But what about the actual point she was making in her scripted uh, diatribe? She says that uh, the country has failed the victims and survivors of this school shooting. And of course, she means specifically that it failed by not passing enough gun control laws to prevent the shooting from happening. Never mind that the shooter already broke a dozen different laws in carrying out his crime. It's unclear how exactly it would have helped to add one or two more laws onto the pile that the killer was already determined to disregard. You can only make an act illegal so many times before the laws start to become redundant and therefore useless. Yet this is what we so often do in our culture. When a bad thing happens, we we declare that the bad thing is the result of some sort of failure. It's always a systemic failure, failure of government, of policy. People like Katy Perry take solace in the idea that all tragedies are policy failures because, and really all bad things, you know, they say poverty is a policy failure too. Because for one thing, it gives them an excuse to push their political agenda, obviously, but for another, it comforts them to think that the right policies, if we could finally land on them, would banish all the bad things from our midst. When Perry says that the country failed because there was a school shooting, what she means is that we ought to have a country where there are no shootings at all. And she's right in the sense that every mass shooting and every bad thing shouldn't happen. That's why it's a very bad thing. If something is evil, like any evil shouldn't happen. 
But Perry, like any other leftist, believes that a country without any murder, without any bad people doing bad things, is actually practically achievable and that it can be achieved through policy. The irony, of course, is that the utopianists who imagine that a world of perfect peace and harmony can really be achieved tend through their policies to create a world that is ever farther away from peace and harmony. Worlds like uh, the world of Chicago, for example. People with, uh, with, with Katy Perry's worldview run most of our major American cities, and most of our major American cities are violent, crime, and disease-ridden hellholes, which actually isn't all that ironic when you realize that effective governance means understanding human nature. And understanding human nature means acknowledging that bad people will always exist and they will always do bad things. You can do a lot. Uh, you can do a much better job of, of containing and mitigating the damage but you can only do that once you've acknowledged the fallen state of man and that although you can mitigate the damage and try to contain it, there will always be damage to mitigate and contain. With all that said, it's still true that a school shooting represents a failure. In fact, it's a whole series of failures. But they're mostly the kinds of failures that Katy Perry and her ilk never want to talk about. First of all, it's a moral failure of the person who carries out the deed People have agency. They have free will. They, they choose to do things. They should be the first people we blame for the things that they choose to do rather than pinning it on the country. Um, and also, very often, there have been parenting failures that help to produce the sorts of people who would do something like that. And failures in a culture which breeds people who have no meaning, no purpose in their lives. Seemingly no capacity for empathy or, or love. These are all failures. And they're the kinds of failures we skip over, focusing instead on debates over gun control. And that itself is also a failure. One which only ensures that this kind of thing will keep happening with the same or greater frequency. And that is why Katy Perry is today finally canceled. And that'll do it for the show today. Hope you have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.